All right, so um, I have a, a little outline for you to follow along uh, with tonight. It looks similar to a lot of the other ones. Uh, title, Isaiah, Gary went over that last week. Uh, don't, don't need to go any further into that. What I do want to take a good amount of time on tonight is talking about Isaiah as the author. Um, that's why I left a bigger chunk there than usual. Um, I know uh, for most of you it's, you know, it's just right there. That says Isaiah right there at the beginning. Therefore Isaiah wrote it. And that is how you should think, and that is right. However, um, during, uh, <laughs> during this session, I want to take some more time talking about specifically that Isaiah is the author of chapters 40 through 66, um, not just 1 through 39. Um, there, there's not a lot of scholars who have trouble attributing, attributing the first 39 chapters of the book to the prophet Isaiah, though some do. Um, but there are many liberal scholars that want to see another later author um, as the author of chapters 40 through 66. Uh, it, is, it is one of the books that's under the most attack um, from liberal scholarship uh, because they, they don't believe that there's any way that the same man could have written this last part of the book. So, uh, so they want to see another author, uh, an author in it, or even two, or even, I read one, one guy thinks there's seven, seven different authors of Isaiah. Um, but there's not, there's not even two authors, there's one author, and, and without looking at anything in Isaiah right, right away, but if you're familiar with chapters 40 through 66, why do you think that liberal scholarship would doubt that Isaiah the prophet wrote the last 27 chapters of the book. Why might you think that? Yes, Because nobody could predict the future that well. Yeah, because no one could. That, that's essentially the reason when it comes down to it. I'll say there's other reasons behind it, but that's the reason. That's the, that's the framework that they're starting from, why they want to see multiple authors in it, uh, because of some really exact predictive prophecy that we see in there. There's very accurate prophecies. Uh, they address some issues way beyond Isaiah's lifetime. Um, uh, there is some different vocabulary and a little bit of different style. We'll talk about that. Uh, but again, the main reason uh, is the accurate prophecies. Um, and so th that's the reason I want to talk about it, because it's not so much when they're saying that Isaiah isn't the author. It's not Isaiah that's being attacked. It's God who's being attacked. And so Isaiah and also the book of Daniel um, th those are good ones that, that we, we need to, because it is, uh, in, in college, I had a, a professor who, uh, on our first day of class, uh, she had us go around the room and say our names and kind of one of our goals in life, and so we all went around, and my goal was something ministerial, I think, and, and I think she came after me, and her goal in life, she gave her name, and then her goal in life is to prove that the book of Daniel is false. As her whole goal in life was to prove that it's false, to spend her whole life proving that it's false, because, and her reasoning is because it can't possibly have been authored the time it, that, that they claim it was. It's impossible. And, and so that was her whole life's goal. And so far, apparently she hasn't succeeded. I don't know where she's doing now, but she hasn't <laughs> succeeded in her life goal. Um, but but that, that book in Isaiah, because of the, the, the accuracy of the predictive prophecy, 
uh, for times that, that, that now we know that we can see that have passed but, but weren't, that hadn't passed yet during the time uh, of the writing, we can see that they're very accurate and the prophecies fulfilled very, very accurately. Um, so, and, and, and all that to say, it, even the best they can do is, is to point out that it was uh, someone in the, in the um, exile, the period of exile that, that they want to attribute the authorship to. That still, I mean, even, even if that was true, which it's not, even if that was true though, um, that still leaves the, the very accurate prophecies of Jesus Christ that, that are still there no matter what. And we know uh, because of the, the Dead Sea Scrolls and others, we've, we've got copies of Isaiah that go back uh, 200 years before Christ uh, on record in museums. Uh, so, so they can't do anything with those. Uh, but some of the stuff that accurately talks about Cyrus, uh, the king, they, they want to they get rid of that. Uh, so they, they teach that another author, or possibly two, wrote the last two chapters, or, or the last chapters, uh, chapters 40 through 66, about at least 200 years later during the ex exile, because the main reason, because it specifically mentions uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia, as the one who would deliver God's people from exile. 200 years before he did it, it, it gives his name. Um, and so uh, somehow they, they want, they, they, they think that someone wrote during that time uh, when Cyrus was there, and then somehow through the years it kind of got tacked on to the end of the actual book of Isaiah. And so they, they want to, <laughs> that's what's funny, is they want to they kind of save some sort of respectability of the book of Isaiah and then get rid of that whole uh, but that whole understanding that, that God could have acted supernaturally and predicted the future. So here's some reasons. I'm going to give you a few reasons why I believe and why it is appropriate and rational to believe that the prophet Isaiah is the sole author of this book that bears his name. Uh, first of all, the text, 40 through 66, never identify any other author. Um, in fact, these authors actually would have had to go to a great length to make it appear that Isaiah was the author of what they wrote. And, and so why then, why would they want to, these other authors, if they were trying to point back and say that it was that, why would they want to defend or save the reputation uh, of, of a book written by deceitful men? Why would these scholars want to do that? If they already knew that they weren't Isaiah, but they were trying to attribute themselves as Isaiah, uh, why... Why would they want to do that? So, so it doesn't claim any other authors. Um, and also, just right in the text, claiming that, that another author must have written it because of the accurate predictive prophecy goes against the way the book portrays God. It goes against the whole way the book portrays God. Even in, So turn to uh, Isaiah 44 and look at this. So Isaiah 44, which is the first chapter that mentions Cyrus by name, which is the huge issue they have, um, uh, it says that in, in 28. But if you look earlier in that same chapter of 44, verses 6 through 8, which we'll look at again later, it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? 
And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. So in that chapter 44, we see God saying that he can do the mark of his of his godhood is the fact that he can declare things that haven't happened yet that will happen for sure. In, in that same chapter, and then later on, we, we see that, that first mention of Cyrus. So critical scholarship is essentially saying that the author can't possibly be Isaiah. They're denying that God can do what he says he can do in this very chapter. Why, why, why are they even bothering to legitimize the book at all? If they, if they have such trouble with God saying this, this, this stuff... And I mean, you can kind of you can see the logical contradiction. Why why try and maintain credibility for this book? You're, you're essentially making trying to make excuses for God. Um, and so one of the main arguments, since they need it, since they need it to be by two different people, one of the main arguments that they do is they try and prove that the two parts are written by different authors. Um, they, try and, they try and prove that it's written by different authors by pointing to vocabulary and pointing to different themes that they see. And they say that there's two different, uh, there's vocabulary is a little different in the first chunk in 1 through 39 than it is in 40 through 66. And we would say, yes, they, they are different, and they're, a little, they're different, um, but they're expected differences. Isaiah is writing, starting in, in 40, to, to an entirely different situation than in 1 through 39. It's no longer about warning the people in danger. It's now about comforting the people in exile. And the differences we see, which are, aren't that big, um, are, are consistent with the fact that he's probably aged a, a decade or two in that time, and he's writing to a different situation. The same, the same way we see different um, vocabulary and language in Paul's letters. Uh, went from Galatians and 1 Corinthians to a letter like Philippians. I mean, there's different vocabulary there. There's different themes there because there are different situations. Uh, it's the same way with, uh, with Isaiah. He uses slightly different vocabulary, but only that which is logical for addressing the different situations. It's not, it's not that big a deal. And I, I also should point out, because I didn't, no one ever doubted Isaiah as the sole author of Isaiah until the late uh, 1700s. That, that wasn't ever a thing. So the people closest to the time always accepted it as Isaiah. It was just later on, uh, and, then, and then a lot at uh, the beginning of the 19th century, or 20th century, I mean, uh, a lot of people started writing stuff just because of the fact that, again, it's the predictive prophecy. It, can't, it just can't be. So, uh, but, but what's happened actually now is that uh, going back and studying that stuff, the linguistic argument is actually made now more frequently from, uh, from those who support the truth that Isaiah did write the whole book. Because uh, when you actually begin to look at it and you look at less common words and phrases that Isaiah uses that are present in both places, there's many occurrences of terms that occur in both parts of the book that hardly occur anywhere else in Scripture. And Gary mentioned uh, the most famous one of those um, last week uh, when he talked about uh, the phrase, the title, the Holy One of Israel, uh, which is uh, uncommon in the Old Testament. That, that phrase occurs 31 times in the whole Old Testament. 
Um, and of those 31 times, 25 of them are in the book of Isaiah. 12 in the first part in chapters 1 through 39, and 13 in the second part of chapters 40 through 66. So you see that same phrase that is used mainly by Isaiah is split right, almost right down the middle between those two sections. Um, and, and actually, if you add the one place in all of Scripture that, where the Holy One of Jacob is found, then it makes it an even 13 on both sides. Um, and there's, there's just, that's the most famous one, but there's other examples like that. Um, in fact, I read uh, uh, J. Sidlow Baxter's book. He has this really good Bible reference book called Explore the Book. Um, and in his, uh, he, he did two chapters on defending the, the single authorship of Isaiah. Um, and he, after his argument of, of, of several pages, or about a whole chapter on, on the linguistic argument, he, he says this paragraph, which I found humorous and wanted to share with you guys. So here, here's, here's Jay Sidlow Baxter. There is really no need to give further instances. The critics themselves have been obliged to make the almost humorous plea that the Deutero-Isaiah, that's what they call the second author, copied the style of the real Isaiah. So he's, and then here's, he lists three, he lists three of the guys he's been uh, interacting with in, in those chapters. Shane, Professor Shane says, the great unnamed, the different writer from Isaiah, often imitated his style and knew his prophecies by heart. And El, El, El Saniki, a, a, Ger a German guy, I guess, who's against, uh, who believes in the Deutero-Isaiah, said, no other prophet has so maintained the spirit of Isaiah as the author of chapters 40 through 66. <laughs> With no other do we find his characteristic manner of speaking so well reproduced. And another one, Aureli says that the author of the second part has assumed Isaiah's form. And then he says, he closes by saying, other examples might be given but is there need? This badly battered argument of the critics has been floored and counted out by those who backed it in the first place. So, uh, so, so it's just, and if you look into it, it's just the, those reasons, the linguistic thing, that's not even something that's brought up anymore. It's just really, really the fact, and that's what uh, Bristow gets to next. He just says, so now we know what the argument is about. You just don't believe in supernaturalism. One of the most important evidences and reasons, though, that we need to have to believe that Isaiah is the author of the entire book is because if he is not, it throws into question the reliability of the whole New Testament as well. As the New Testament quotes from Isaiah more than 65 times, he's the, he, I, Gary mentioned that last week, is the, the book that by far is quoted the most uh, by New Testament authors. How many times? Uh, 65 and directly mentions him as author. In other words, doesn't just say the book of Isaiah or scripture says, but says Isaiah said 20 times. And nine of those 20 times are from chapters 40 through 66, where it specifically says Isaiah said this. Uh, so it's, that's different than saying, that's different than saying, like this, somehow when they quote from, uh, from the Pentateuch, they'd sometimes say scripture says, and then some, some, sometimes say Moses said, right, to, to verify the authorship of Moses. Same way, it's not, 
the prophet or the book of the prophets or the prophets or scripture. It's Isaiah said. In the new, um, so nine times from those chapters. So if you actually turn to John 12, this, uh, this is probably just the best one to look at for this. Turn to John 12, um, verses 37 through 40. So 12, 37 through 40, uh, it says this. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. So in your Bibles, you have um, at the bottom of your Bibles, there's a little place where it shows where those quotes were taken. You see that? So where are they from? Isaiah 53.1 uh -huh. and, and Isaiah 6.10. Isaiah 6.10. So both parts, both attributed, both parts of Isaiah, both attributed to Isaiah, the prophet, not just the book. Um, so, so they're both attributed to him, uh, Isaiah the man. So the main reason f for attacking the authorship of Isaiah is because they don't want to admit the things about God that this book proclaims about him, that, that the book of Isaiah proclaims about him are true. They don't want to believe those things. They don't want to admit those things. But if you start to question it, and if you start to pull that authorship away, it starts to it starts to not just the book of Isaiah calling it why would you even believe all the stuff it says about God in Isaiah if he can't if we're not going to believe that he can accurately predict the future there's a lot of awesome stuff it says about God in there why would you believe that but also it starts to call into question the, the authors of the New Testament so those are reasons why, why it is essential that we believe that Isaiah is the author of Isaiah. It's very. It's not like Hebrews, where if if you guys don't believe like Travis believes that Luke wrote Hebrews, you know we're not going to boot you out of the church. You're not going like, to get keep, get kept out of heaven. You know, Travis. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about that. So it's, like, you know, it's got some good uh, good proof on it, but it's not one of those things that's uh, that's that's that essential. Um, Isaiah is the author of Isaiah. It is important. It's important to our faith. All right. All right, so with that in mind, then the date is 739 through 684 B.C., sometime in there. No questions. So we don't even have to talk about that. All right, I wrote down uh, for you, since so I don't have to repeat it a million times like I usually do in these things, the purpose, the purpose of the book uh, is, and especially in my part, it's a little different than Gary's from last week. The holy Yahweh will not permit unholiness in his people. So he will therefore deal with them in such a way as to chasten and purge them and make them fit to participate in his program of extending his rule over the Gentiles. Isn't that good? I didn't come up with it. That's good. <laughs> And then the theme, the theme, which we'll see, uh, see it played out at the end of it tonight. God will punish the wicked, but will remain faithful to his covenant by preserving a godly remnant and promising salvation 
through the coming Messiah. All right, and then uh, for an outline I wanted to show you. So Gary gave a little bit of an outline, and I was going to do that one too. But I decided since you got his already, since you got that one, I was going to use that one too. I, I decided if you turn over on your on your pages, which I didn't get one of those, I need to grab one. You'll see the, the chiastic structure thing that I like to point out all the time. Um, it, that's a very, this is a very helpful way to walk through, to look through, to look at the book of Isaiah. Um, and then some of, the, some of the specific things that, that I really like in it um, are it is something that really sticks out if you look at this. Is, you guys remember the chiastic structure that we talked about? It's like a mirror kind of looking in, in a center, uh, center main kind of point. Um, that the the see the B on both sides that that is really clear the the humiliation of the proud king in thirteen one through twenty seven through thirteen you find those and then the exaltation of the humble servant in forty nine one through fifty seven twenty one it's really um, it, it really stands out it's it's, it's really good uh, so this is a this is a helpful way to kind of look at it. Um, so that's for you. Uh, if you don't get anything else out of today, you can, you can use that in your own studies of Isaiah. So you'll have that, and you'll know without a doubt that the prophet Isaiah wrote the whole thing. Um, all right. Uh, now let's get into the major themes. The major themes. The first one, and we kind of alluded to it already, is Yahweh as the Holy One of Israel. Yahweh is the Holy One of Israel. All right, so, so there's some good reasons why, why, I, why Isaiah uses that title and, and how it really just helps uh, inform the rest of that book. Uh, so turn in uh, your Bibles to Isaiah 41.14. Isaiah 41, 14. Uh, Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So what, what you notice there, and it's really clear, clear there, and we see it in other places too, is, is the term is used to, to strike a contrast between who God is and who Israel is. So the, there's the Holy One of Israel on one side and the worm Jacob on the other. It's not positive, uh, a positive look there. Um, and, and you see some, there's actually similar uses of the Holy One of Israel in, in the section that Gary did. And, and you don't have to go there, but in chapter 5, uh, 18 and 19, in verse 24, you see it used there again, uh, contrasting uh, a nation. Uh, in 17.7, you see it, con uh, the Holy One of Israel, in contrast to the idol worshipers in Damascus. Um, so it's, it's not just in this section, it's also in the other section. 43.3, uh, uh, turn there. 43.3, you, you see him say, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. 
I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. So it contrasts between the Holy One of Israel and and these other nations. Verses 14 and 15 of the same chapter. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. So again, contrasting Holy One of Israel to these other nations that he is in control of. Um, in, In chapter 45... Verse 11, which is where he begins to talk about Cyrus. There's inter- I didn't mention this, but there's actually an interesting uh, Josephus, the, um, uh, the Hebrew uh, historian. He has, a, he, he has an interesting uh, section in one of his writings about how Cyrus saw or read the, the, uh, read the prophecy about him in Isaiah. And that's one of the things that motivated him. In what he did, uh, it could be true, it could not, but that that's pretty interesting. Um, again, not scripture, so it doesn't have to be true, but that would be an interesting way that you see the prophecy being fulfilled. Uh, sorry. So anyway, Cyrus forty five eleven. Uh, back to talking about the Holy One of Israel uh, forty five eleven. It says, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, Cyrus, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my, um, of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. So, again, you see him contrast God's greatness even to Cyrus, the guy who he's going to use Cyrus to do some good things, but... Don't be mistaken. There's one holy one of Israel, and then there's these guys that he uses. Um, so one of the major reasons then that we see for the use of for Isaiah's use of this title seems to be to set God completely apart from everyone and everything else. It's supposed to create an appropriate level of awe throughout the book while we are regarding. God. So that so 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 having that understanding of of who God is as in relation to all of the nations, all of the people, even the kings, that who he is, how far apart he is from them, uh, in, in have that in uh, your head, thinking of that, how much greater he is. And then look at some of these other places, and even uh, some of the stuff we verses we looked at, but also some of these other ones where it's used. Look at forty-seven four. <clears throat> forty-seven four. Our uh, our redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Forty-eight seventeen. Uh, Thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I, the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. 49.7 Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And then look over at 54.5. 
54.5 For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. So what, what was the similar words you saw in all those ones other than Holy One of Israel? Redeemer. So, so it's, you see him using this term to, to contrast everyone else and himself, the Holy One of Israel, as, as compared to everyone else, every other nation, every other king, uh, even the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, contrast, and, and just to see how much greater, how, how much better, how much stronger, how much more important he is than all of these other things, and then also see that that same one, that same one is their Redeemer. That same one is their Savior. So there's a, a multitude of times where he uses that uh, verse. So the Holy One of Israel, Yahweh is the Holy One of Israel, is a, is a major theme uh, to pay attention to. Uh, another one, <coughs> a, a big one, which, which Gary covered most of, because that would take all of our time uh, to look at, is uh, the sinfulness of Judah in Yahweh's judgment, and then the sinfulness of the nations and Yahweh's judgment. So you have th those two things, and that is just just everywhere in chapters 1 through 39. Just go, Gary talked about those, but as you get a lot, bunch of the sinful nations, which we had up here on the board, Assyria, Babylon, Moab, Damascus, Ethiopia, Egypt, Tyre, Edom, all of these nations uh, have specific... God, is, God specifically says things against them about their, their sinfulness and, and his judgment upon them, as well as Israel and Judah, both included in there. So I won't go into that since, since that was covered last week, but it's important to have that in your mind as we keep going. Uh, the, the, the sinfulness of all the nations and God's righteous judgment against them as a result. So the next major theme I want to talk about is God's sovereignty and omnipotence. God's sovereignty and omnipotence. Some of the absolute best statements in the whole Bible on the sovereignty and power of God are found in chapters 41 through 48. You, you probably actually have noticed that if you pay attention to the scriptures I choose in announcements. Anytime Chuck is doing like behold our God or something like that kind of magnitude after I'm done, I, 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 my mind is drawn to these chapters in Isaiah uh, because of what they say about God's sovereign power and rule. Um, they're, they're just excellent to read. In fact, we'll just... We'll, we'll just, we'll, we'll all read some of them. All right, so can, can I get uh, a volunteer to read 41, 17 through 24? All right, thanks, Dad. 42, 5 through 9. Who wants to do that one? They're all in Isaiah, by the way. <laughs> Lee, all right. 43, 8 through 13. Larry. 44, 6 through 8. I'll do it. Thanks, Lauren. 45, 18 through 21. Alyssa, thanks. 46, 8 through 11. Thanks, Scott. 40, no, 48, 3 through 8. 
Alright, so we're just going to read these passages. Just, just listen to them or follow along. And just it, They're awesome. Awesome passages. Uh, but yeah, make sure you're paying attention as each one of them is read. Alright, so who was first? 41, 17 through 24. Alright, go ahead, Dan. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will sit in the desert, the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, to declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing, and abomination is he who chooses you. All right. For, and yes, this is going to take a while, and I planned it to. There's literally nothing we could do better with our time, so it's fine. 42, 5 through 9. Thus says the Lord God, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from prison. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. All right, 43, 8 through 13. Right now. 8 through 15? 8 through 13. 8 through 13. Yeah. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, it is true. You are, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no other or no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work 
and who can turn it back? Forty-four, six through eight. Who read that? I did. All right, go ahead. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of Hosts: I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no god. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it forth before me. Who has announced from of old the things to come? Let them tell us what is yet to be. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. 46, 8 through 11. I think you skipped 45. Whoops, wait. Yes, I did. 45, 18 through 21, thank you. I don't want to skip any. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, and he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their living idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. All right, now 46, 8 through 11. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. 48, 3 through 8. <clears throat> the former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. Okay, so what is your response? What do you think of, what do you feel even, when you hear passages like those? 
I'm encouraged. Why so? You know, it's nice to know that nothing we can do can thwart his will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that really helps if you've been watching the news and you're worried about North Korea, right? <laughs> what else? I love it because God throws down the gauntlet. He says, so big boy, come and show me your stuff. <laughs> you know, just over and over again, that's what I heard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the phrase that rings is, I am God and there is no other. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what I was getting to. Yeah, and in case you forgot that, I am God and there is no other. <laughs> over and over, yep. Is there a real comfort and confidence mm -hmm. in the clarity with which God speaks, mm -hmm. sweeping away every other confusion, darkness, murkiness? Uh, there's no obfuscation, it's clear. He says, I'm God, and that's it. So it's just it's just a comfort to like like Alyssa said, just an encouragement. And that's the one voice to whom we must listen. Mm -hmm. That's it. No fear. No fear. Well, on the flip side, I would say fear. <laughs> <laughs> no, so why is it I mean that's that's important. I kinda wanted to bring that out too. So the first thirty-nine chapters, Gary it's this is the God who finds you guilty. Yeah. This is the God who finds you guilty. Israel, Judah, Assyria, all of these other nations. Uh, so there is, so, so we are encouraged by it um, because of what we know of God and, and, and our relationship with him uh, as his people, as his church. But yeah, on the flip side, if you're not on his side, what's that say? Yeah. Yeah, to me, the other encouraging thing that I really never picked up before, but one of the verses, passages said, he's the only God who is Savior. Mm -hmm. You know, and you look at the other gods and their purpose was not to, to save people. No. That is, Any of them. that is what makes him the Holy One, mm -hmm. that there is none like him. He says, the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer. Your Redeemer. There yeah. is no other God on the planet that is by nature a Redeemer and a mm -hmm. Savior, mm -hmm. both calling to account, but then providing the, the means of salvation of his own mm -hmm. grace. Mm -hmm. There is no other God like that. No, not then and not now when you compare it to any other religion. It's all... What can you do to get to him? What can you do to get to your God? Sort of thing. No, this, this God is Savior. He does it. He acts. Yeah. Josh, when I was saying fear, I also meant uh, the holy fear that we should have. Mm -hmm. that's, what this, that's what these passages make me think of. Holy fear, then, and in, in so what do you mean by that? Like, the odd reverence. Yeah, odd Really. Or the kind of attitude toward God that leads to worship mm. is, that's what I mean by the fear of God. See, now, don't you want to sing, Behold Our God? Behold. Yeah. Anyone else? I'm thinking about a guy in a little country that's about to lose big time on the international front, reading about a God that none of the other nations 
know about, and we're reading about this guy's words today, <laughs> thousands of years later, and I don't know anything about Assyria's religions. Yeah. Babylon's <laughs> religions. Yeah. And I've tried to find out more, and there's just not that much to know. Not much, because they don't exist anymore. There's not a lot of people celebrating those or into that because they served those nations served their purpose that for for this god well those gods are created by people mm -hmm. and people suck <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, i mean there's uh it's, it's not biblical no it's but uh but in in all of those yeah, yeah, there you go. Say it that way. Iron sinews and bronze foreheads. Um, yeah, it, it's, yeah, that's creative. And, and he draws that out over and over, the fact that, that your carved image, your God, and I, I did these things. So you can't say that your God did this, that your metal image did this. Anyone else? I think the big thing that's hitting my mind right now is how do I let this impact you on a day-to-day -day basis? Because I think, you know, we sit here and we read it and we go, wow, that's awesome. And then I walk out the door and I get distracted by the world and I get scared about anxiety about what's going to happen and God becomes a little idol on the shelf that, that I forget the power that he has and it becomes worse than a book. And so I think for me I'm really struggling with do I really allow this to sink in and affect me to the core, or do I just acknowledge it as truth and go on about my day? That's good. And one of the good things you can do then is read them more. <laughs> read them more, memorize them. But not, these are, these are, not that the rest of the Bible isn't worth memorizing too, but. Um, these are the, these are the passages for situations where anxiety might have be an issue for you. Yeah, there are a lot of people at just to that point that um, you know they take the name of God and Christ, and yet in reality they are practical atheists. They they just profess, but they don't really live it out. And I think that's the going back to like Psalm one that talks about the man. You know, who will prosper is the one who meditates, delighting in God's law all the time, day and night. So it is, it is a matter, I think, of um, this truth saturating our minds and delighting our hearts. And when we feel cold to it, that's when we get, uh, get on our knees and pray and ask God to warm our hearts to it. Because we don't, we, by nature, we have the iron sinew neck and the bronze head. <laughs> Hard-headed, stiff-necked. Um, that's kind of just by nature what we are. We're sinners. So we just have to Lauren and I were joking today that we needed a little tattoo instead of the whole question, just a little purple freckle, so that every time we looked at it, it we would think, oh, God is sovereign over even this. What can I learn from it? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we can all go get little purple freckle tattoos. Together. <laughs>
<laughs> or we can memorize it. <laughs> no, but for those moments yeah. where you're not thinking, it just becomes words. You're like looking at like, oh yeah, <laughs> why do I have a crippled freckle? <laughs> I've n yeah, okay. If that works, there you go. Study eight. What? Hmm? Study eight. Study eight. Yeah. There you go. Anyone else have anything they want to say on those? Passages. I just think that passages like those, and speaking of practical atheists, just why would someone, why would someone, on the basis of the book's predictive prophecy, try and make excuses? I mean, these guys are like they're trying to validate scripture. Like they want to, they want to redeem it. They want to save God from some of the stuff that He says, sort of thing, and and. They want, to, they want to bring some sort of merit to the book without, by, but the way they want to do it is by completely denying, completely denying that God is anything like he says he is in this, or that he has any of those powers. I mean, if that's your reason for not trusting who the author is, then you, there's no reason to trust any of the book's theology. Why redeem it? It's practical atheism. The, uh, so, so kind of what I want to see as we, as we look at those, uh, those things, the direction of this book uh, to this point uh, should, should cause you to see a couple of things now crystal clearly. First, the wickedness and the rebellion of all the nations, even God's chosen people, um, their, their utter helplessness, their utter sinfulness uh, before an absolutely holy, sovereign, omnipotent God, all-powerful, sovereign over all creation, past events, future events, everything. Uh, and so it shows that. And then it also brings to light the need uh, for salvation that's been hinted at and pointed at in various places throughout uh, the book, even in the early parts, even in the first 39 chapters, uh, that the implication that um, he, this God, is the only one who has any kind of power to save. And the only one who can. The all-powerful God, the one whom we have sinned against, is the only one who has the power to save. And he has found us, according to this book, absolutely, hopelessly guilty. Guilty. But he is the only one who can save. The only one with power to save. He is the only redeemer. So, uh, so, so that, that's kind of where, and, then, and that's where uh, we see in that, that middle section, the narrative section, uh, 36, 37, 38, 39, um, th there's this hope in the, in the whole Hezekiah narrative that Hezekiah might be might be a hope, might be a mediator, might even uh, be, be the Messiah figure um, uh, to, to help us out, to, to be the one uh, who stands between Judah and the Holy One of Israel, um, the one who could kind of put them back on God's side. And, you read, and, and Gary read that whole story. Uh, he read out of... Uh, you didn't read out of Isaiah, but it's in three places in the, in the Old Testament because it's, because it's a very important story to them. But it's also there, right there in, Isaiah, in, in 36 and 37 of Isaiah, um, 
we see this amazing story where Hezekiah, if you want to just uh, glance at it, turn back there uh, for a section. If you look at your outline, it's that middle section, the middle narrative section of Isaiah. Um, when uh, remember when when Sennacherib invades Judah um, and and Hezekiah uh, prays for deliverance from God he he like Gary was talking about he doesn't go to the other nations for help he goes to uh, the the prophet Isaiah and then he goes to God in prayer and and. In 37, 14 through 20, you see him say, uh, you see, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you, uh, you, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of uh, the, the king of Assyria, have, the kings of Assyria, have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord. Our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. So you can see right in that prayer all the theology that we've just talked about, right? The, Hezekiah has the understanding that has been revealed so far in the book of Isaiah. Uh, his prayer that God would save his people uh, for the sake of his own glory, for the sake of God's own glory, is just this amazing display of trust and confidence in God that has been just sorely absent in the kings of Judah. Even the good kings don't sound like this. Um, there, there's all kinds of, so with a prayer like this and then with God's miraculous delivery of the city, there's all kinds of hope that, that, that if you're reading this you're, and you're just reading it for the, the first time, your hope is in Hezekiah is, okay, this is, we know, right? We know that God made a covenant with David, and one of his descendants is going to be this, uh, the, the, the eternal heir, the Messiah, who sits on the throne of David uh, forever and, and ushers in peace. And we, and we know that this is, this is coming. And, and, and even look, actually, if you look at 38, and uh, after uh, Hezekiah prays to recover from his sickness and, and the Lord heals him. If you read that, uh, the, it says in verse 9, we see Hezekiah actually authoring some scripture here. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and recovered from his sickness. He says, I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, and bring me to an end. Like a swallow or crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. 
What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you, as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me. And we will play the music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. Even in that, you, you kind of, that, doesn't that have a David feeling to it? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and, and, and so you get through those passages and, and you see this, this potential promise being fulfilled in, in Hezekiah. And then you read ver- chapter 39. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this happens. At that time... Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he had heard he had been sick and had recovered, and Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. He, the, he, this is the people from Babylon who conquer like, like it's bait. He's giving them bait. <laughs> then Isaiah, the prophet, came to Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then here's Hezekiah, the hopeful mediator. (laughs) Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. (laughs) So you get this one more, just just to bring another failed mediator. And in light of all of this that, that we've seen, all the way through there, it just makes the last of the major themes we're going to talk about all the more astonishing, and that is salvation. Salvation. It looks, at this point, it looks so bleak. It looks so bleak. And then the very next verse, the beginning of chapter 40, following that, verses 1 and 2, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. 
And then a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So we, we see, we go from that, this bleak, one more very, very promising looking mediator who fails to God comforting his people with the, and, and we know, right? Did you guys recognize verse three? Yeah. Who's out of prophecy? Yeah. That's um, John the Baptist, the, the forerunner for Christ. They, they, now comes the prophecies for the real one, the real guy. Now, no Hezekiah. Now we start to see with increasing clarity God's plan to save this wicked people, not merely from other nations, which he does, which, which he does prophesy with Cyrus and a lot in 40 and 49 about, the, the, about being freed from Babylon, from the Babylonian ex- exile, but more importantly from the sin and the rebellion that has been their real enemy all along. One of the things that Isaiah is exposing is this is it. This is your main issue. Sin, wickedness, rebellion against the Holy One of Israel. And, and, and not only not only this stubborn nation, but all nations. This has been hinted at um, just so, I mean, just, just to bring more unity to, to the whole book. And uh, even in even in the parts in in, in chapters one through thirty nine and uh, 11, 11 through sixteen twelve one and two chapter nineteen verse twenty chapter twenty five verse nine chapter thirty three verse two all hinting towards this salvation that that is coming uh, it's, so it's not it's not just completely foreign to that section um, but here it's becoming more clear. Uh, 43, 25 through 28, uh, just shows exactly what we were just talking about. 43, 25 through 28 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. So the contrast, again, you're all in, your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Um... I mean, so, like the, the statement in verse 25, that, that's just an, that's astonishing. Blots out your transgressions. When you keep in mind all the stuff we've talked about, about who God is and just how wicked all these people have been, and he is going to blot them out and remember sins no more. And f- look over in 45, 17. 45:17 But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation 
You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity, saved by the Lord. Again, what we talked about, he is a saving God. He saves Israel with an, and notice, an everlasting salvation. Not talking about you're just going to go get, uh, get out of exile. Everlasting salvation. Um, and, and we see that theme again in 51, chapter 51, verses 4 through 8. 4 through 8. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands hope for me, and my arm, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. His righteousness, and then that builds into the most famous, the most famous, of course, sections on, on God's salvation uh, for us, and, and those are the, the servant songs, uh, which are in uh, 42, 1 through 9, 49, 1 through 13, 50, 1 through 11, and then uh, the, the most famous one, which you all know, 52, 13 through 53, 12. And the, the way we divide the chapters up is not right. That's supposed to be, that should be one that's one continuous um, section of scripture. You should read it that way. Um, and and it, actually, let me, let, let's look at that because I want to show you something really cool in there too. Um, 52, 13 through 53, 12. And you can kind of see the way it's divided um, in, in your Bible. Like it, it usually has the little, like the double spacing or triple spacing, I guess. So you can see one, two, three, four, five sections, right? So you can guess that I'm going with the, the chiastic argument again, but uh, let, let's just read this. Um, 52.13 uh, all the way through 53.12 Behold my servant shall act wisely. He shall be I know you all just heard it on Sunday and Travis read it and it fit, but this is great. Behold my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he, has taken, he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall his righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So we have, again, this whole, this all of Isaiah, and, 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 and we have this holy God, this all-powerful, sovereign, omnipotent God being elevated and, and being shown in contrast to this sinful, wicked people who do not deserve saved. And then we come to understand that th their only hope is that God would save them. And, th and we're seeing the truth that he is a saving God, that he is the Redeemer. And here we see his plan of what that is going to look like, a, a, the, the beginnings of what that plan is with more clarity, as he said before. Um, but I want you to see in those sections, if you see those five sections, and you have that middle section, it is the middle if you do the, the mirror structure, you know, the, like this building down to this main point right here, which is verses 4 through 6 of chapter 53. And in there, you have the main point then being, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. So the answer, the ultimate answer to where our salvation is going to come is in the wounds of the servant. Um, it's just uh, the, the central point of our salvation. Lie, and, and, and their hope lies in this unbelievable truth that this, this servant will come and bear our transgressions. Uh, it, it, it's just awesome. It's astonishing. Um, uh, so, uh, and then, then the joy of seeing, if you look in chapter 45, 22, of seeing stuff like this. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. All the ends of the earth turn to me. 49, 6, 49.6, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. So this is another one of the servant songs. 
that you sh- it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So we go all the way in the book of Isaiah from, from this initial, this realization in Isaiah 6 that Isaiah has this understanding of how unclean even he is. That he, by far the godliest person alive on the planet at the time. And, and he is unclean. He is undone, he says. He's a, he, he's a man of unclean lips. He lives among a people of unclean lips. We have this view of him understanding how unclean even he is before this God to seeing this very same God, this very same God who should just destroy us, should just wipe us out, offering salvation to us instead. Um, and, and so uh, so those are the major themes that I wanted to look at, and I left 10 minutes then for if there's any questions or further discussion that you guys want to have or, or add adding points to it. The last time on Song of Solomon, you guys had some really good stuff to say, so no pressure. But <laughs> <laughs> Anyone? That section you read out of Isaiah 52 and 53, mm-hmm. There's that uh, constant refrain of we, 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 we. It's Isaiah's prophesying a time when redeemed Israel looks back on what they did to Christ mm-hmm. and interprets and understands it. And it becomes a witness to unredeemed Israel. Mm-hmm. That's trippy. <laughs> and that's Theological term. <laughs> Theologically trippy. We'll talk about it on Saturday. I think you actually wander through darker places than that. <laughs> <laughs> the word trippy. It kind of blew, blew my mind when I read a, a messianic uh, Jewish website that tried to argue that Isaiah 52 and 53 weren't even about the Messiah because he had to prove text the entire Bible to disprove that Jesus was Christ. Um, and, and it was just... Yeah, reading that and, and reading uh, atheistic writings or biblical criticism and finding more similarities between the schools of biblical criticism and atheism, like you were saying a second ago, than, than with Christianity. Uh, Daniel had to have been written after the Maccabean Revolt hundreds mm-hmm. of years later just because, you know, mm-hmm. even though it's in the Septuagint before that. Um, they don't know that. Just because. You know, they, they introduce more error with their criticism than anything else. Yeah, well, and then the you know the fact that like that you can't there that you literally can't because of the date of some of the Isaiah scrolls we have, like they got to do something with these pa- these very specific passages on uh, uh, because we know that they were written that like at we have copies from two hundred years before any of this stuff happened um, and. That they got to do something with that. So it used to be. Uh, I, I actually heard a guy say that Jesus it was his ultimate deception was he was trying to do some of this stuff, <laughs> trying to get some of this stuff done. So that he knew it. He knew the scripture so well. He was trying to make sure influence things in certain ways to make sure that when he was dead, everyone would 
start to think of some of this stuff about I mean it's like that's the that's the kind of number one on the list I yeah. gotta be born in Bethlehem yeah here we go you gotta be born in Bethlehem now I need to do that no and I think Dan Brown, I think the Da Vinci Code guy, said stuff about how like he, he manipulated the story of his origin to make it, yeah, is, I mean. From the cross, he, he said stuff. to the soldiers, you guys get out some dice and start gambling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't break any bones. Yeah. <laughs> He's like goading them on. Hey, stab me in the side. Bet you won't stab me in the side. Bet you won't. <laughs> <laughs> um, this will be recorded. Yeah. That's a it great plan. <laughs> it is fascinating to read that section, Isaiah 52 to 53, um, to a Jew, you know, someone who practices. And just, just watch them. And just watch them react to it. It's mm -hmm. fascinating as you uh, just let the word of God have its effect. Or reading it, especially to someone who's uh, a Jew by, like, by birth, like they're just they, they've not really studied it much. Can you just say, "Hey, who's this about?" And uh, <laughs> well, it's about Jesus. It's from Isaiah. It's not about Jesus. <laughs> it's, it's not. Uh, like it's it's clearly if anyone you read it's clearly about Jesus. If you know that story and that, and you read them, you know it's about Jesus. It's just oh wait, I, I didn't realize it was written so much beforehand. That can't happen. Therefore, it's not. Uh, yeah, it's you have to do a lot to. to yeah, wasn't that there one. like three hundred prophecies that Christ fulfilled? Yeah, and even if you just took the ones in Isaiah, it's ridiculous. You've you've got no chance. Anyone else have anything they'd like to add? All right. We'll have not as much time, but a little bit of time to talk before you go get kids. Lord God, I uh, thank you so much um, again uh, for this for this this book and in, and specifically even just the book of Isaiah. And just the amazing truths that we learn about you from it. Um, who you are, and as was brought up before, have, would you just help us to keep these truths in our heart, uh, to drown out the things of this world that try and, um, try and convince us otherwise, uh, that even blur some of this stuff. Uh, that these would be the type of truths that orient our priorities, um, that keep us focused, that, that help us to stand firm uh, in times where uh, people all around us are falling and, and weeping and filled with anxiety and wonder and worry, uh, that our trust in this sovereign God who controls every single thing that's going to happen, everything that has happened, uh, not just that, and you declare it. You declare what's going to happen yet. And that that same God saved us, redeemed us at, at cost to only himself. 
Well, thank you so much, Lord. And I pray that uh, we would remember these truths as we go about uh, this week and through our lives. Uh, thank you, Lord, that we can all be a part of a church like this uh, that um, tries as hard as we can to plumb the depths of your word because uh, that is that is the best way to know uh, you, this incomprehensible God, better. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.